Bob was a quiet child with sober grey eyes and a mop of tousled mouse-coloured hair. He was, for the most part, obedient. He learned how to talk, and once he had learned, he would pester the graveyard folk with questions. Why am I allowed out of the graveyard, he would ask. Or, how do I do what he just did? Or, who lives in here? The adults would do their best to answer his questions, but their answers were often vague or confusing or contradictory, and then Bob would walk down to the old chapel and talk to Silas. He would be there waiting at sunset, just before Silas awakened. His guardian could always be counted upon to explain matters clearly and lucidly, and as simply as Bob needed in order to understand. You aren't allowed out of the graveyard. It's aren't, by the way, not ant, these, not these days. Because it's only in the graveyard that we can keep you safe. This is where you live, and this is where those who love you can be found. Outside would not be safe for you. Not yet. You go outside. You go outside every night. I'm infinitely older than you, lad, and I am safe wherever I am. I'm safe there too. I wish that were true, but as long as you stay here, you are safe. Or, how could you do that? Some skills can be attained by education, and some by practice, and some by time. Those skills will come if you study. Soon enough you will master fading and sliding and dreamwalking, but some skills cannot be mastered by the living, and for those you must wait a little longer. Still, I do not doubt that you will acquire even those in time. You were given the freedom of the graveyard after all, Silas would tell him, so the graveyard is taking care of you. While you are here, you can see in the darkness, you can walk some of the ways that the living should not travel. The eyes of the living will slip from you. I, too, was given the freedom of the graveyard, although in my case it comes with nothing but the right of the bode. I want to be like you, said Bod, pushing out his lower lip. No, said Silas firmly, you do not. That was a reading from The Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman. So, that's the book. What's the breakfast, Chris? Well, the breakfast is, of course, bagels. Why, of course? It's not It's not obvious, is it? Um, because there's no real correlation. However, I was listening to uh, the No Such Thing as a Fish podcast the other day, and they had Neil Gaiman on as a guest. Um, and he talked so much about bagels on there that it gave me a serious <laughs> bagel craving, and I've been eating them for breakfast almost every day since. I was wondering, um, I was looking out for foods within this book, and I was wondering if we'd end up uh, having pizza for breakfast, controversial as that be, because I think it's, there are lots of foods mentioned, because yeah. Silas goes out into the world beyond the graveyard to collect food for Bod, but pizza seems to be the kind of most standout mo moment where you actually see him eating when they go to the pizza restaurant to have quite a serious conversation at the end of the book, oh, but I may be getting ahead of yeah, myself there. But, um... Yeah, there is such a thing as breakfast pizza, I think. Mm. I mean, I mean, I made one once, so it must be a thing. <laughs> it was a pizza with beans and and bacon on, basically. Yeah, I, I mean, you could have mushrooms. They could be on both of them. Yeah. You can see the blade. Tomatoes, Tomatoes. breakfast thing. Yeah. It's Hang on. Have we, we've blown this thing wide open. Yeah. Pizza is a breakfast food. Oh, my God. You know what pizza is? It's Italian cheese on toast. <laughs> oh, my God. Or I should say Italian-American <sighs> cheese on toast, because they could... Be it's not traditionally Italians put cheese on pizza, is it? No, it's so, not. That was an American edition. Yeah. I was in Italy uh, 14 years ago, and 
um, I was worried about being able to find a vegan equivalent of the humble pizza. Mm. And an Italian restaurateur told me that traditionally it was just the marinara, which was the tomato sauce and vegetables on the pizza bread. And it was only when it was transported, imported, imported, yeah, exported, exported back from America that cheese got added to it. And that's the one that's become the kind of popular version. But the cheese pizza is a sort of a cover version of the yeah. uh, the marinara. So there's well, amazing, a little known pizza yeah. fact, which you probably didn't come here for, pizza fans. But amazing how many things are like that. The fusion, <laughs> yes. you know, that like chop suey or, you know, the idea of these almost invented dishes. Well, all dishes are invented, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. But it's just, it, it's multiculturalism. And it's, uh, uh, you know, to go off on a mad tangent, it's why immigration is the the lifeblood of any community and diversity is a wonderful thing and uh, talking of you know cover versions and authentic uh i was i shared that podcast with a friend and they sent me a picture of uh uh, a place i don't know if you've been there on on brick lane bakery at bagel bake because in the in the podcast neil gaiman was saying that the correct pronunciation of of this food stuff is actually bagel wow uh and And this was on brick lane it is uh, on London, yeah, and ah, okay. uh, yeah, my friend said um, you've never lived so you've had a proper fresh pillowy Jewish bagel or bagel. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, I feel ashamed. We're just eating the ones from Tesco, <laughs> the New York Bagel Company. Um, but and they then probably weirdly, aren't even based in New York. <laughs> I think they're made in Bolton. Um, <laughs> but then the, the the next day, somebody else that I know posted on social media a picture of them of themselves outside uh, Bagel Bake. Mm. Um, and I felt like the universe was calling me towards it. I've just found it on Google Maps. It is but 208 miles away from our current location. So let's hop it. If only we were actually uh, in Highgate recording this, we'd be a little bit closer. <laughs> because we're sort of, well, I want to say, um, well, happy Halloween, first of all. We're back with an unadvertised bonus episode. Cause we planned this we weren't sure if we'd get time to record it or not, so we didn't promise it. And yet, here we are. I think we're delivering... I think we did promise something that we've yes. not done yet. We're delivering well, something unexpected. We're throwing one of many curveballs this yeah, year. Yeah, so we promised Animal Farm in June didn't deliver it. But now we've given you a surprise Halloween episode. So, you know, so don't complain. Please stop complaining <laughs> whoever that is that keeps writing in complaining please stop and who writes in by post anyway anymore well i was gonna say we're back in highgate cemetery um we were not really but we're still <laughs> we're still loitering it's october we're still loitering around graveyards and we talked about we we hit we teased this last episode when we were discussing her fearful symmetry by audrey nefeniger uh and we mentioned the story that you think may be apocryphal okay well that's <laughs> but the you know the, the legend goes that uh, neil gaiman was, was researching the graveyard book and uh met uh audrey nefeniger uh, as a you know who was unexpectedly really wink, uh <laughs> doing a tour uh, of highgate and it was very sweet i noticed that uh, audrey is thanked in the acknowledgements at the end of this book it says she showed me around the ivy covered marvel that is highgate cemetery west a lot of what she told me chap- crept into chapters seven and eight. Um, and I think this graveyard, and again, I think we talked about this last episode. Um, it's it's a kind of mishmash. It's a fic- fictional graveyard, but it's a mishmash of so many different places. There's a lot of the, Gras- uh, there's a lot of the Glasgow necropolis in there. Mm. 
but it's very very high gate and we've got two different editions here in front of us and i've got the um they're both illustrated i've got the one that's illustrated by chris riddell and the depiction of some of the tombs on here and the headstones is very 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 high gate and a gorgeous depiction of uh the woman on the pale horse on the back but more of her mm. later but you've got the dave mckean one yeah it has some gorgeous illustrations in and i think the uh the chris riddell one probably targets the younger end of the young adult mm. audience um this one seems to have illustrations that might be targeted at slightly older readers um i don't know if you quite call it the the grown-up edition but i'm not sure i've won to have a grown-up edition of no. this book there's i remember during the harry potter boom they'd always release the ones with the adult cover so that people um could feel less guilty reading something with a brightly colored cartoonish cover on the train and i don't know if that's a good thing yeah embrace it i mean don't embrace jk rowling but no, certainly not. and i'm sorry for mentioning her on this she is <laughs> but yeah persona but that, non grata in these I, circles but that idea of of you know that the shame of an adult reading a children's book and what's the point in being grown up if you can't be childish sometimes mm. as tom baker's doctor famously said um and this is a children's book very much we, we covered um the ocean at the end of the lane last year uh, which is very much not a children's book which is interesting because it has they both have child protagonists well, sort of. This one quite definitively has a child protagonist in mm. the ocean at the end of the lane, frames it in the narrative of an adult looking back, and then it slips into his childhood narrative. Oh, that's but a really good point. It's still yeah. kind of the meta narrative, still feels like it's driven by an adult. I think he's quite clever the way Neil Gaiman writes about the worlds of adults and children. And. I think there's a lot of similarities between the Graveyard Book and The Ocean at the End of the Lane. Mm. They possibly take place within the same world. There are hempstocks uh, in both of them. Yes, yeah. And there are certain beats of the plot that feel like it's kind of telling the same story. And there's a part of me that thinks he's written two versions of the same story for two different audiences in The Graveyard Book and The Ocean at the End of the Lane. What well, do you think? I wouldn't go as far as to say as they're two versions of the same story, but I definitely think they share some DNA. Mm. Uh, and for me, like you know, I'm a fan of Neil Gaiman, but these are these two books. I, I don't know when we're not really talking about Ocean today. We've we've done that one, but Ocean at the end of the lane on the graveyard book to me are in a completely different tier to his other stuff. They are yeah, masterpieces. I, agree. I think they're two of my favorite books ever written. Um, and it's, so maybe I just I just lump them together because I love them so much. Um, but there is. Th and again, maybe we're skipping to the end here, but Ocean at the End of the Lane, you have this protagonist, this sort of middle-aged protagonist who is suddenly remembering things from his childhood, slightly magical, uncanny, impossible things. And I feel that there might be an implication at the end of this book, which is kind of a coming-of-age story, is that perhaps Bod won't remember the graveyard. I think, it, I think it's more than an implication. Yeah. I think it's writ quite large in the end. I think he... And, well, skipping it wouldn't be the ahead. first time we're skipping yeah. ahead on things, but I find the ending of the Graveyard Book incredibly heartbreaking. Oh God, in a yeah. way that the ocean at the end of the the ocean at the end of the lane is melancholic, mm. but this, this is, is quite devastating yeah. because his whole world, everything he knows, the family he's grown up with, the friends, the kind of extended yeah. cast of characters, and his guardian Silas, 
it's all going to be out of his head. And I found that devastating. He's going out as a 15-year-old, mm. almost with no ties to the world, no friends, no family. Yeah. And a lot of his memories of what's made him him are going to go. I found it really devastating. Mm. It, yeah. it really broke my heart at the end of this book. And I think that kind of ties into the, the origin of, of, of this book and how it came to be. And in fact, I think this is something that he mentions again in the acknowledgements uh when he says my son michael inspired this book he was only two years old riding his little tricycle between gravestones in the summer and i had a book in my head it just then took me 20 something years to write it because i remember seeing a couple of interviews with him about this book where he was saying that he tried to write it i think when he was in his 20s and it didn't quite work and then he came back to it and it still didn't quite work and then he got to a point of thinking well it's kind of I, well, the way he kind of self-deprecatingly tells it is, um, I wasn't getting any better, so it was kind of oh. now or never. But I think he'd got to a point where he was, you know, an accomplished enough writer to do the idea justice. But also crucially, that something that he's mentioned, he came up with the idea as the father of a young child. But he he said he had to write the book as the father of children who had grown up and left mm. home, and that is kind of what this book's about in wow. so many ways, isn't it? It is, and you know. If not to say that it's perhaps the same story as The Ocean at the End of the Lane, I think he was very much in a similar headspace when he wrote these two books. And they're probably about six years apart, which in the scheme of things is nothing. But in the passing, it probably feels like quite a long time. It feels like an era, mm. 2008 and 2013. Though, so it's five years apart. Okay. Yeah. I think, if, I'm just saying that off the top of my head. But um, yeah, wow. I mean, my life was so different bet you know, between those years. But yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah, I, I mean, in 2008, David Tennant was the Doctor. And in 2013, Matt Smith was the Doctor. It's, well, no, in I, 2013, I, uh, uh, in the day of the Doctor, David well, Tennant was the well, Doctor. Oh, yeah. And in 2023, <laughs> an actor called David Tennant is the Doctor. <laughs> How things change. I, I say that because whenever I think about basically any time post-school, I kind of mark it out in terms of what Doctor Who era course, it was. And yeah. I know you do the same, so... Yeah. We, we've done that thing again. We've gone for just under 15 minutes um, without mentioning Doctor Who, and here it is. But I can't help but measure any era in terms of the Doctor. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. We always said that the Ocean of the End of the Lane was the gravitational centre of a book at breakfast because mm. it united everything somehow. And, you know, the, the, the thread that runs through is the constant uh, Doctor Who referencing. And Neil Gaiman, of course, famously a huge Doctor Who fan and uh, a writer of Doctor Who episodes and stories. So it all, it all fits. Mm. Um, but the Graveyard book, uh, it probably doesn't owe much to Doctor Who, but it owes a hell of a lot to the Jungle book. Yes, oh, it does, doesn't it? I'm glad you've mentioned that. And I love the idea that it's basically uh, not a rewrite, but a retelling. And it, and it wears that uh, that homage and that love on its sleeve, you know, even in the title of, of the book. Um, <laughs> and so to get into it, so we'll probably, we're going to be spoiling the hell out of the Graveyard book, but it's, you know, it's over, well over a decade old. Uh, and that's my main criticism of this book is that it came out in 2008 and not uh, 1988, because I wanted to grow up reading oh, this book. Yeah. Um, I mean, I really... As weird as it sounds, I really associated with Bod reading this. Now, I wasn't raised by ghosts in a graveyard, but when you grow up obsessed with spooky things and, you know, funny bones and atmosphere and goosebumps and are you afraid of the dark, you feel 
like you know in the words of uh, Lydia Dietz from Beetlejuice strange and unusual and you feel like <laughs> to an extent that you were raised by ghosts and even as a kid I liked hanging out in graveyards and um and I haven't changed but so I really associated with the character in that respect I associate with them in a different respect um because I I wasn't as obsessed with spooky things in the same way as you were as a kid but I was always a bit of an outsider and kind mm. of struggled to mix and took years sometimes decades yeah. to make <laughs> friends so I kind of associate with his outsiderness and he is quite literally outside society and it's interesting you know you'd think with that in mind the chapter I probably enjoy the most would be the um the one where he goes to school um, I was gonna say that yeah yeah and actually, I think it's a bit too close mm. to the bone, and I find mm. it quite uncomfortable. Oh, I see, right? Yeah, I thought you'd really it. like it. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, interesting. I like the end of it when yes. he's in the lab. Oh, um, and all the creatures with come alive. Maureen, is she called Mo? The Mo, bully. yeah, yeah. Um, and he kind of brings everything to life in yeah. the lab to kind of like Put the scare her there, yeah. into being nice. I really mm. like that bit, but a lot of the other bits where the bullies are doing their thing, it brings back that kind of cold clammy unsettling mm. looking over your shoulder feeling of being in school a little bit too vividly it made me quite wow. uncomfortable oh wow but probably a sign of excellent writing yes yeah and so as i say we are spoiling this book and you should have read it but if you haven't the gist is that a boy uh his family are murdered when he's a baby and just by pure chance well he's a toddler really and he, he toddles uh into the the local graveyard where he is protected and then raised by the spirits of the graveyard and he gets a kind of adoptive mother and father in mr and mrs owens uh and because he's nobody uh he's named nobody owens which <laughs> or bod or for bod short. for short or, the, or bob as they call him at school which <laughs> bob, owens. Bob, yeah, kid, bob owens <laughs> and there's the the wonderful the quote at the beginning of the book is rattle his bones over the stones it's only a pauper who nobody owns <laughs> i just think that's fantastic but yeah i i'm gonna struggle to put into words quite how much i love this book it's almost an intangible thing and you mentioned the school chapter i think nobody owns school days so we have the first chapter in which the sinister man the man jack assassinates yes. bod's family for, for reasons unknown um well or sort at the of beginning. at the beginning yeah uh, but Bod escapes and is raised by ghosts in the graveyard and is dressed in a winding sheet and lives in a tomb and everything that I wanted to be doing when I was a child and indeed an adult. Um, <laughs> but after that is established, each chapter is very much a short story in its own right. And I think it's very telling that, uh, again, I think Neil, Neil Gaiman had this idea and he knew it was great and kind of almost struggled with it for a while and sort of getting the tone right and i'm sure everybody knows this but he actually began by writing chapter four that's where he started with the witch's headstone which is um uh the story of uh i was about to say liza hempstock but that's not uh liza hempstock's no it is i, was, it's, it's I, I get letty and yeah. liza mixed yeah. up those hempstocks mm -hmm. and they're hempstocks in uh stardust as well aren't they oh, right i was going to ask because i've I think this is the third, no, fourth, if you include Norse mythology, the fourth Neil Gaiman book I've read for novel. So it's only the second one that I've encountered the Hempstocks in. You've not read Stardust? I've seen the film oh of it, but not well God. enough to remember. Um, wow. if well, that's another conversation. It. Yeah, and maybe yeah. that's going to be a third Neil Gaiman episode. Yeah. Um, because I love these two books. 
And I think they had the conversation on the Ocean at the End of the Lane episode that I was introduced to Neil Gaiman by a couple of people that were in my English class mm, at university. Yeah. And they recommended um, a Nancy Boys and what's the other one? American Gods. American Gods. And I wasn't that keen on yeah. either of them. Um, so, yeah, I, I keep mentioning Neil Gaiman books thinking, actually, I've read that. So this is the fifth Neil Gaiman <laughs> book I've read. But I've not read Stardust. Um and I find the Graveyard book um, and The Ocean at the End of the Lane very different to American Gods and Nancy oh, Boys. And I love The Graveyard uh, the, book and I love the, end of the Ocean at the End of the Lane where I kind of struggled a little yeah. bit with uh, uh, American Gods and Nancy Boys. At the risk maybe of I should reappraise the obvious, them. They're very English, these two books. Yes, yeah. maybe that's it. Yeah. Um, Which is odd because normally I obsess over American things. But. Yeah. Uh, but uh, like I say, each chapter in the Graveyard Book works as its own short story and Bod is a little older each time and we see him growing up uh, and eventually having to sort of in interact more with the human world, hence the school chapter. Um, but what amazes me about this book is I love everything about it. I love the location. I love the characters. I love the Owens. Uh, the Owenses. I especially love Silas, obviously, and Bod is really lovable too. And of course, Liza Hempstock. Um and the idea, the whole world of it, it's it's kind of it it's it's inviting, it's spooky, it's sumptuous, and yet somehow, and I don't mean this uh, as a criticism, but to me, it's somehow much more than the sum of its parts. Yeah, it is. Now it's only, is it? I think it's nine chapters long because the, the the final chapter is very brief. It's the pizza chapter that we discussed <laughs> earlier. I think it's uh, it's eight with an interlude in the middle. That's it. There's the, yeah, I was thinking of the, the little, interlude. The con is brilliant. The convocation. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, and I feel like there's a much larger book within this, and in some ways I enjoyed it as much for the experience of having the world and the characters in my head to then imagine what else was happening in the mm. graveyard, what else Silas was doing, you know, what else Liza was doing, more than what was actually printed. And there are some chapters, like the school one, which I, I enjoyed all of them, but that feels kind of very standard children's kind yeah. of uh, you know it's slightly spooky but adventure story and one of the chapters that i actually enjoyed least and that's unfair because i i love them all but one of the chapters i enjoyed least was the penultimate chapter when it all comes to a oh, head interesting. And other, yeah oh, i love that um and it went it was i guess i was much less interested in that kind of stuff than i was than just the life in the graveyard and i love the witch's headstone i especially love the ghoulgate chapter yeah uh, and there's something even though it's so silly um after something i found really sinister yes. and unnerving about Incredibly. it and the ghouls eating people and then naming them after the people they've eaten is and the fact that they seem to inhabit this sort of strange desert land as yes. well yeah um in terms of what you're saying about how the book is bigger than the sum of its parts, I think part of that is the way that occasionally you get the details of the headstones. Yes. So, to give an example, here lie the mortal remains of Nehemiah Trott, poet, 1741-1744, oh, yeah. swans sing before they die. And just in that, you get, <laughs> like, this this little teaser hints at the whole life of the poet, and somehow it does become more than the sum of its yes, parts, because yeah. there's all these little biographies in there where you can go away and put the book down, go make a brew, and you fill in the stories and the blanks of all those people that he meets in the graveyard. Which is intriguing, because he, he has hinted, and I don't know if he will ever do this, but at writing a sort of sequel to this. Mm. And he said, but if he did, 
the graveyard book with the sequel would be called the honor guard which we know mm. is this mysterious yeah. uh, thing that uh, miss lepescu and silas belong to some sort of fight against mm. evil and he said that the graveyard book would be to the honor guard what the hobbit is to lord of the rings nice um, okay oh so it'd interesting. Be a big epic and i'm very intrigued but at the same time it wouldn't in the same way that and we talked about this at length in our hobbit episode that the lord of the rings is very much not the hobbit and the hobbit is wonderful in of itself as a as a charming children's fairy tale adventure story and again there's a real charm and a simplicity to the graveyard book that's all about bod and living in the graveyard and i think that if he did write the honor guard it would be a different book i'm sure i would enjoy it but it would be very different i think it would there's something about the graveyard book in the kind of the hinting at the different worlds uh, that allows you to fill in the blanks and in that respect it's larger than life and larger than death yes yeah (laughs) but maybe the honor guard would be the kind of big comprehensive tome and maybe it would be more adult well, I imagine so, and because you get your protagonist, if Bod was in it, I don't imagine he necessarily would be, but if Bod was in it, he'd be an adult now, in the same way that the readers, if you were a kid reading this in 2008, how long ago was that? Eight, about 15 seven, years ago. Right, yeah, so yeah. you'd be you'd be grown up now, um, in the same way that the children who read The Hobbit were grown up by the time of Lord of the Rings, so of course it has to have a different tone. But uh, So yeah, so this book... Again, to, to go back to Tolkien, something that Tolkien referred to as textual ruins is where you hint at something like uh, an implied history or, mm. you know. Um, and of course, with Tolkien, like because he'd written the Silmarillion, a lot of that was actually real, but he would drop references to things that the readers knew nothing about. And yet, even though it should be baffling and weird, it g- gives you a, a sense that, no, there is a world here. There is a mythology. There is a history. And there's so much of that in the in the Graveyard book. But for me, the bit where the, the veil lifts, as it were, is chapter five, Dance Macabre, which when I say that um, this book is somehow more than the sum of its parts, chapter five is the moment where you think, no, this, everything that is hinted at in the earlier and subsequent chapters, it's chapter five is that. Mm. It is that, that, you know, it's more than a glimpse. It's something profound. And I would go so far to say it as that, um, you know, I'd say this is one of my favorite books of all time, but this chapter, this is one of the best things I have ever, I think this is one of the greatest things any human being has, has ever put into words. And I, I struggle to really explain why. And it's very appropriate that this episode is going out on Halloween, not just because it's a spooky graveyard book, but um, the fact it's original title, <laughs> the spooky graveyard book, <laughs> but it's... Um, this chapter is all about the living and the dead coming together mm. and it's it, it explicitly states it's not halloween as this is something else this is something more but nevertheless this is what halloween means mm. to me and that that thinning of the veil uh, I, I feel like it is halloween in this world because there's no yeah. there's no other halloween section well it's but... it's winter it's not autumn but the whole mm. point is that there's blossom in winter yes. this unusual uh um confluence of of the living and the dead and it begins uh with i'm just going to read the the entire start of the chapter because it's so incredibly beautiful something was going on bod was certain of it it was there in the crisp winter air the stars in the wind in the darkness it was there in the rhythms of the long nights and the fleeting days mistress owens pushed him out of the owens's little tomb get along with you she said i've got business to attend to bod looked at his mother but it's cold out there he said. I should hope so, she said. It being winter, that's as it should be. Now, she said, more to herself than to Bod. Shoes. Look at this dress. It needs hemming. And cobwebs. There are cobwebs all over, for heaven's sake. You get along, this to Bod once more. 
I've plenty to be getting on with and I don't need you underfoot. And then she sang to herself a little couplet Bod had never heard before. Rich man, poor man, come away, come to dance the macabre. What's that? asked Bod. But it was the wrong thing to have said, for Mistress Owens looked dark as a thundercloud and Bod hurried out of the tomb before she could express her displeasure more forcefully. It was cold in the graveyard, cold and dark, and the stars were already out. Bod passed Mother Slaughter in the ivy-covered Egyptian walk, squinting at the greenery. "'Your eyes are younger than mine, young man,' she said. "'Can you see Blossom? Blossom? In winter?' "'Don't look at me with that face on, young man,' she said. "'Things blossom in their time. They bud and bloom, blossom and fade. Everything in its time.' She huddled deeper into her cloak and bonnet, and then she said, Time to work, and time to play, and time to dance the macabre. I love that so much. And I only realised, maybe on my third read, uh, you'll have spotted it instantly, that it's written, to literally you can read the words to the rhythm of Dance Macabre. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> time to work, and time to play. I was wondering if you were going to sing it. Macabre. When, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, and I, macabre, because that is how a child would pronounce the word macabre. Yeah. That's wonderful. Um but it also, it sounds like a dance, doesn't it? Um, so then we have this incredible, and it's quite a short chapter, but where basically all the inhabitants of the graveyard and all the other graveyards in the town just walk in a kind of silent procession uh, to the town square, isn't it? But also all the living people do too, and they dance together. Mm. And it's something that n nobody speaks of. And afterwards they make out like it didn't happen. And you get the impression <laughs> that the living didn't remember and the dead don't speak of it. And it's this idea, this this coming together of, well, it's memento mori, it's, it, it's the, the, the dance macabre. It's, you know, one day you will die, but not today. These people are alive. But that I, it's, it's, it's so profound. I struggle to really put my feelings about it into words. Makes me think if... Gaiman was either trying to channel or reinvent an anglified version of the tradition that some cultures would celebrate the Day of the Dead. Mm, yeah, um, we're talking about a children's book, but you know these are the <laughs> themes within it, and um, and we get uh, I mentioned in this Chris Riddell uh, illustrated version. I think there's a depiction of her in the Dave McKean one as well, but the woman on the pale horse, who of course is Death, and I love that. Oh. It's yeah, quite it's eerie back, in the it's beautiful. one, yeah. Um, and I love how, you know, this version of death is very different to the Good Omen's death, who is basically the Discworld death, and very different still to the death of Sandman. Um, and I, I love this depiction of, uh, you know, and then suddenly, like, as there's even a, a question about, you know, who, who makes all this happen, and then there she is, uh, the, the woman on the pale horse who rides into the middle of this procession. And it says, Bud had never seen a real horse before only in the pages of picture books, but the white horse that clopped down the street towards them was nothing like the horses he had imagined. It was bigger by far, with a long, serious face. There was a woman riding on the horse's bare back, wearing a long grey dress that hung and gleamed beneath the December moon like cobwebs in the dew. She reached the square, and the horse stopped, and the woman in grey slipped off it easily and stood on the earth, facing them all, and the living and the dead of them. She curtsied. And as one, they bowed or curtsied in return, and then the dance began anew. Now the lady on the grey leads us in the macabre, sang Liza Hempstock, before the whirl of the dance took her off and away from Bod. They stomped to the music and stepped and spun and kicked, and the lady danced with them, stepping and spinning and kicking with enthusiasm. 
Even the white horse swayed its head and stepped and shifted to the music. The dance sped up and the dancers with it. Bod was breathless, but he could not imagine the dance ever stopping, the macabre, the dance of the living and the dead, the dance with death. Bod was smiling, and everyone was smiling. He caught sight of the lady in the grey dress from time to time as he spun and stomped his way across the municipal gardens. Everyone, thought Bod, everyone is dancing. He thought it, and as soon as he thought it, he realised that he was mistaken. In the shadows by the old town hall, a man was standing, dressed all in black. He was not dancing. He was watching them. Bod wondered if it was longing that he saw on Silas's face, or sorrow, or something else, but his guardian's face was unreadable. He called out, Silas, hoping to make his guardian come over to them, to join the dance or have the fun they were having. But when he heard his name, Silas stepped back into the shadows and was lost to sight. Last dance, someone called, and the music skirled up into something stately and slow and final. Each of the dancers took a partner, the living with the dead, each to each. Bod reached out his hand and found himself touching fingers with and gazing into the grey eyes of the lady in the cobweb dress. She smiled at him. Hello, Bod, she said. Hello, he said, as he danced with her. I don't know your name. Names aren't really important, she said. I love your horse. He's so big. I never knew horses could be that big. He is gentle enough to bear the mightiest of you away on his broad back and strong enough for the smallest of you as well. Can I ride him? asked Bod. One day, she told him, and her cobweb skirt shimmered. One day, everybody does. Promise, I promise. <laughs> and with that, the dance was over. Bod bowed low to his dancing partner, and then, and only then, did he feel exhausted, feel as if he had been dancing for hour after hour after hour. He could feel all his muscles aching and protesting. He was out of breath. A clock somewhere began to strike the hour, and Bod counted along with it. Twelve chimes. He wondered if they had been dancing for twelve hours, or twenty-four, or for no time at all. He straightened up and looked around him. The dead had gone, and the lady on the grey. Only the living remained, and they were beginning to make their way home, leaving the town square sleepily, stiffly, like people who had awakened from a deep sleep, walking without truly waking. The town square was covered with tiny white flowers. It looked as if there had been a wedding. <laughs> that was a lengthy passage, but I had to read the whole thing. It just, it says so much. And that line about, you know, the, the pale horse being not just uh, gentle enough to bear the mightiest mm. away. And that, that, you know, your mighty warriors who die in battle don't need strength, they need tenderness. But then that heartbreaking line, strong enough for the smallest of mm. you as well, meaning that the strength they must have to endure the heartbreak of having to take away maybe a child or someone who's died before their time. I thought that was a wonderful observation. It's harrowing. And you don't get this in Winnie the Pooh. I was just thinking about like <laughs> the kids that are read this as a bedtime story. Would they process it and would these thoughts kind of linger and haunt them, even maybe in an abstract way? Or would those elements perhaps go over their heads and maybe come back on a rereading later mm. in adult life? I would look, yeah, it would be quite something to have read this as a child and mm. then reread it as an adult. I'd love to speak to somebody who, who was younger who had read it when they were young when it came out originally. Um, let us know if that's you <laughs> um, but yeah I say everyone's dancing the living and the dead but of course Silas is not mm. dancing because he is neither living nor dead, should we go and have a cup of tea and then talk about Silas? Yeah absolutely 
Well, we're back. Um, I forgot to mention at the beginning of the episode, actually, there may be some spooky noises, by <laughs> which I mean we're recording this uh, somewhere quite busy today, and <laughs> there may be some sounds of running water and clunking. Um, we normally, as I said, we didn't think we'd have time to record this episode, but we've snatched an hour, um, and the compromise is that there are some people upstairs. Or um, are they discarnate spirits? sort of clanking in the walls and exactly, rattling the yeah. pipes that's you know if it should you choose to imagine that that would be a perfectly valid interpretation of what the noises are and it was all deliberate very thematically appropriate but uh, but yes yeah, so silas i love the fact that neil gaiman never once says that silas is a vampire i was wondering all through because you kind of know he is uh, but because he never explicitly addresses it it was only at the end where i thought it's pretty much confirmed because I think he says he has no reflection yes, in the glass table yeah. at the pizza restaurants. And there's a bit earlier on where it says, oh, I'm not troubled with mirrors. Mm, yeah, yeah, uh, mere baubles of vanity. Um, and of course, there's a bit where, where in the school uh, chapter where Bod is arrested and Silas turns into a bat. Yeah, um, <laughs> But yeah. he never explicitly says it. He says a, bl- a, a man-shaped bat-like thing swooping from the lampposts and then... It's fantastic, but Silas, what an incredible character. Mm. Uh, and again, it's that sort of textual ruin thing that you get the impression that he hasn't always been a good person. Yeah. Uh, and he's quite tortured, but now he's uh, part of this mysterious thing known, known, as, uh, known only as the Honor Guard. And there's the classic sort of good night Mr. Tom thing where in one chapter... Silas goes away mm. and uh, a sort of uh, substitute guardian is brought in called Miss Lupescu, who compared to Silas, who's quite cool, um, is very strict mm. and very strange and makes him eat odd food. And But then you really grow to love Lu- yeah. Miss Lupescu. Um, and it turns out that she's a werewolf. Yeah. Uh, and they're part of it. I love, you know, the hints at whatever this thing that they're part of. They're supernatural creatures, but on the side of good and fighting some good fight against whoever the convocation are. And it's interesting, like, when we think about Silas as somebody that has perhaps done dark deeds mm. in the past but is now good and is part of this order fighting for good, it made me think of Angel in Buffy. Yes, yeah, <laughs> you know, I'd never thought of that, but mm. yeah. Uh, what is it? I bring hope to the hopeless. <laughs> he is a bit like Angel, yeah. a very British angel. I... I mean, I imagine in my head Silas is cooler than Angel, and he's Richard E. Grant. He is Richard E. Grant, and Silas has that kind of Gandalf Doctor like very effect. much. So. so you kind of feel yeah. like whenever Silas is in the story, nothing too bad can happen because yeah, everything's going to be you. okay. But then and he says, so oh, those moments when he yeah. does go away, you kind of feel like the rug's been pulled from under Bod's feet. Yeah, yeah. we've got to go into Mirkwood on our own. Mm. <laughs> um, it's very sweet. I I, I recently watched uh, Neil Gaiman's class on Tolkien on the Masterclass oh. app and it's really sweet and I'm probably going to keep making these comparisons but, but as we said like he said this is the Hobbit to a possible epic that may mm. or may not exist but I think it exists in his head and you get the, those those snippets of it those textual ruins throughout the graveyard book and I think that's great but so I think is it is chapter three the first time where Silas has to go off on his uh secretive and, and heroic work uh, and Bard is left with Miss Lepescu. Yes, that's right. And chapter yeah. three, and we, I've, I've talked about how much I love chapter five, the, the Dance Macabre and the Witch's Headstone 
is wonderful. But but chapter three is right up there too. Is it called the Hounds of God? Yes, the Hounds uh, of God. Because well, that's what Miss Lepescu is, and she's one of the Hounds yeah. of God. We we later reveal. But there are villains in this chapter as well. And this, to think you're about to read the beginning of chapter three, which I think is one of the all time best passages in the book. One grave in every graveyard belongs to the ghouls. Wander in a graveyard long enough and you will find it. Water-stained and bulging, with cracked or broken stone, scraggly grass or rank weeds about it, and a feeling, when you reach it, of abandonment. It may be colder than other gravestones too, and the name on the stone is all too often impossible to read. If there is a statue on the grave, it will be headless or so scabbed with fungus and lichens as to look like a fungus itself. If one grave in a graveyard looks like a target for petty vandals, that is the ghoul gate. If the grave makes you want to be somewhere else, that is the ghoul gate. There was one in Bod's graveyard. There is one in every graveyard. Silas was leaving. Bod had been upset by this when he had first learned about it, but he was no longer upset. He was furious. But why? said Bod. I told you, I need to obtain some information. In order to do that, I have to travel. To travel, I must leave here. We've already been over all this. Why is it so important that you have to go away? Bod's six-year-old mind tried to imagine something that could make Silas want to leave him, and failed. It's not fair. His guardian was unperturbed. It is neither fair nor unfair, nobody owns. It simply is. Bob was not impressed. You're meant to look after me. You said. As your guardian, I have responsibility for you, yes. Fortunately, I am not the only individual in the world willing to take on this responsibility. Where are you going, anyway? Out. Away. There are things I need to uncover that I cannot uncover here. Bob snorted and walked off, kicking at imaginary stones. It really brought home, you know, we were talking about the whole passage of time thing and the idea that six years, it isn't that that long a time, especially mm. if you're an immortal vampire. Um, but that's Bod's entire life. And in that time, yeah. Silas has never left before. But you can see from Silas's point of view, these things. And I, I got, um, going back to uh, our Devil Rides Out episode, I got some Duke de Richelieu vibes from there. <laughs> you know, I must go and consult some yes, titles of the British true, Museum, yes. you know. <laughs> but there is, again, it's something very Gandalf about that, something very cool about this, you know, all-seeing, all-knowing mentor figure that says, oh, but, you know, there's, I, I need to go and deal with something. I need to go and research something. And you're never allowed to know what it's it is. It's incredibly Gandalf. But you it, know it's really yeah. important. Mm. Oh, well, we do kind of know what it is, well, don't we? We, yeah, we find out yeah. later on. Um, but especially from Bod's point of view here, and again, yeah, I love the fact that he's angry. Like, how could you leave me? And um, he really portrays Neil Gaiman. Really portrays the sort of I don't want to say selfishness, but that thing that children have, where they at that point they think they're the center of the universe yes. and don't always think that people might have priorities other than them. Yeah, and of course. What's sad in Bod's case is he doesn't have traditional parents who yeah. can make him the centre of the world. The people that look after him, it's almost like a coalition, like the Owenses mm -hmm. do the the kind of domestic part of it, and yeah. Silas does the kind of moral guidance and raising him. Um, but, you know, they, they've both taken on this responsibility. So Bod doesn't have somebody to whom he is their complete world. No, There's a real sadness no. in that. So 
selfish is the wrong word to use, but I think Neil Gaiman does write about that kind of yes. that child's perspective really well. And I think it's something he does especially well in both this and the ocean at the end of the lane. Yeah. It's like I think a lot of us as we get older lose that grasp where we're able to kind of put ourselves in the mind of the child and think, mm. Well, I remember like yeah. what it felt like when my parents said no to getting that packet of sweets. He's really good at putting himself there and following the thought process that a child would have and getting yes. it out onto paper in a way that a lot of adults aren't. I think it's a real skill he's got. I'd say what was a really good example of that is the moment in Ocean at the End of the Lane where the South African guy has just killed himself mm. in his dad's car and all the protagonist can think is, I want my Batman comic because yeah. he's on the back seat. I think <laughs> you would feel like that if you were yeah, eight or however, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, just going back to the beginning of that chapter, I love the concept of the ghoul gate. Mm. Uh, and it's so true because everyone knows that that grave in their local cemetery or graveyard. I know where mine is. He's basically setting up a sort of a game for children there, I think. Any child totally. reader will then want yeah. to go to their graveyard and they'll want to find their ghoul gate. And he's setting up play for yes. his young readers there. And, but there's a delight. He's creating a mythology. Yes, yes. There's a delight in the writing of it as well, which has definitely influenced me. That idea of, like, if you personally believe something for fun, the, the joy of taking that and in an authorial way to say, this is, this, this is magic, this is cursed, this is... A secret you know what i mean just to think well i'm in charge of this world and it is what i want it to be and you like to think that maybe that was something you know the whole thing of the the germination of this story being his 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 child bicycling around the graveyard and um uh, yeah, maybe ghoul gates were a thing that his children talked mm. about you know you have these silly little games when you're little and it's wonderful to kind of um not immortalize them as such but kind of re-explore those concepts like it within fiction i think that's brilliant and yeah, like you said, so the ghoul gate is it, it, it opens into a kind of what in inverted cemetery, a, a weird it's like the upside down. Yeah, yeah, it is like the upside down. In Stranger Things, I feel like at the moment I probably don't need to contextualise this, but <laughs> as this podcast will hopefully sit there for posterity, in fifteen years people might not be. So what you're saying is Stranger Things so much. In fifteen years, people will have forgotten all about Stranger Things, but they'll still be listening to a book at breakfast. <laughs> I was more thinking that (laughs) Stranger Things might not be the cultural kind of zenith that it is now, but I feel like the Graveyard book will still be sought out by those who need it. I like that, yeah. Um, But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, huge, huge, huge spoilers. Uh, Miss Lepescu dies off page later on. I almost... um, I always felt a little tear come to my eye when mm. you were talking about before how we come to warm to her. Yeah. And uh, I was sort of clutching my chest a little bit. Oh, uh, Yeah, in some kind of mysterious fight with the evil... Jacks. Uh, the evil Jacks, yeah. And we mm. don't really find out too much about them and what they actually want. Well, I think it, it's hinted yeah. at. It's hinted at enough to be sinister. So I think when when somebody dies they take on their attributes so mm. and it kind of gives them magic powers yeah so they go around killing people intentionally and they pick people that have certain attributes that they want to take on because the more people they kill the more they kind of grow in terms of these attributes so they're adding kind of skills and powers to themselves so they seek out specific people that have things in order to kill them and take them on and they become increasingly powerful and then they can 
rule or manipulate uh, people around them to keep their order at the top mm. of power and to keep themselves in favour and riches and splendour and hot dinners. Yeah. Like um, the Tory government. <laughs> but is there something kind of like bootstrap paradox about the situation with the mm. man Jack and Bod? Because if I, you've read this totally. more recently yeah. than I have, because the idea is that there is this prophecy that this child will be born who is, you know, who basically straddles the, the, the world of the living and the dead and yeah. will have the powers of a ghost and be able to fade and, and see the dead and be able to dance with the, you know, the woman on the, the pale horse and all that. So the man Jack goes to, tries to kill Bod for that reason, but in doing so, he ends up setting in motion, setting in motion to become that, that person. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, Bod, well, he doesn't kill them all, but the ones that come to the graveyard... Uh, oh, actually, and it is all, uh, it's quite neat with the, with the ghoul gate that they end up sort of transporting them to Ghoulheim. Yes. Let's just remember that the place the ghouls live is called Ghoulheim, <laughs> which is amazing. The eerie desert of graves. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, it's kind of amazing the way by trying to prevent what they fear, he sets it in motion. And so... Pointedly, Bod doesn't kill any of the Jacks. No. And maybe we should give a little bit of context here because we're introduced to the man Jack. Yes. Which is such a great childlike description mm, yeah, of a yeah. sinister adult figure, the man Jack. And it's a very sinister kind of childlike, the very beginning, what is it? There was a, a hand in the dark and it held a knife. Mm. I mean, it's the children's story, but on the other hand, it's like, oh, is this too much, you know? And we get little glimpses of the man jack throughout he's talked about by certain knowing members of the graveyard and then we have the convocation in the middle where he's talking to a a sort of society it's a gathering of the mm. jacks isn't it well and we only get introduced to them as the jacks at the end of the book yes. so it's just he's talking to a mystery society yeah. in the middle and it's only when they turn up at the house because when he reappears seemingly as the kindly mr thrust oh yeah yeah at the end of the book and again and he jack rents frost. the house that bod's family were murdered in yeah that he killed them in oh my god which is particularly brutal and vindictive and i did not and... see it coming at all by the way that mr frost really was the man jack. Oh, my no word. did you did you was that signposted for you i just thought this man is too nice <laughs> and i thought this character he has to have a purpose because everyone that's introduced into this book is done so with a purpose, mm. especially among the humans. True, yeah. But yeah. it was only when the other oh, the yeah. jacks, the jacks of all trades, turn up at the yeah. front door that you realise that actually there are many jacks yeah, of get, different get trades. Mr. That, Dandy. Yes, Jack <laughs> Dandy. Yeah. Old oh. Jack Tar. Yes, yeah. Every man jack of them. Yes. Oh my god. And it's such a cool idea, it the really Jacks is. of all trades. They're, yeah, yeah. They're kind of like a sort of Masonic society. Very much so, yeah. Are wanting to keep in power and influence and control things from from afar in order to kind of exploit the world to their own ends. And I, you know, and, and that is all really cool, don't get me wrong, and it's sinister and I love that the way that, that you know there's the confrontation in the graveyard at the end, but at that point it becomes it's more of an adventure story and it's less there's slightly less of what i love about the rest of the book which is as i've said a few times before now just the, the idea of life in the graveyard mm. if that's not a, an oxymoron but after uh, the men jack the men jack the man jacks the, the man jacks. The jacks of all trade the jacks of all trade uh have been dealt with uh we get the pizza chapter yeah uh, it's not called the pizza chapter is it what's it actually called but um, it's... Marinara God. Madness. <laughs> um, the 
the ending of this book is just it's heartbreaking. Oh my, it's so good. Oh, of course, it's called Leavings and Partings. Mm. And earlier on, there's a wonderful thing that C did where um, uh, Mrs. Owens is singing a song to Bod. Uh, sleep, my little babio. Sleep until you waken. When you wake, you'll see the world. If I'm not mistaken, kiss a lover, dance a measure, find your name and buried treasure. And then she can't remember the mm. final verse. It's something about bacon. And then, <laughs> and then finally, at the very end of the book, uh, she remembers. Then the last lines of the song came back to Mistress Owens, and she sang them to her son. Face your life, its pain, its pleasure. Leave no path untaken. And there's this implication, well, not even an implication, it says that he's losing his ability to see the ghosts. He tried to put his arms around his mother then, as he had when he was a child, although he might as well have been trying to hold mist, for he was alone on the path. What a heartbreaking idea. He's already lost one set of parents, and now he's lost his, you know, adoptive parents, for want of the better analogy. Yeah. It really breaks my heart, the end of this. And even and though he, he tries to set it up as hopeful, I think, like he's going it out is, into the world's adventure, but I struggle to find much hope in it, I'm it, sorry to say. Yeah, and there's the whole thing about how when Silas is trying to explain mm. the danger that he's in, he's like, well, they'll kill you. But then Bod, everyone he knows is dead. He says, well, I'm not scared of being <laughs> <Yes>, killed. <laughs> and I can't remember the exact wording of it, but Silas has a really good point. He's saying that the people in this graveyard are done with being alive and you're not done yet you haven't li- you know and it's it is hopeful because he's going off and he's about to start his life you know um and yet he's lost something and even though it's it's spooky and it's macabre it's macabre you know the the idea of um i'm sure we've mentioned this on the podcast before a quote from a doctor episode w- with queen victoria in where she says that um ghost stories like the real appeal to ghost stories is is to you know allow ourselves to believe that there's something after death there's mm. something beyond and so anything you know matter how macabre or eerie or weird it's still fantastical and it's it's magic it's a book about magic and and you get the impression that he can't see mr Owens anymore mm. and he doesn't have the freedom of the graveyard anymore and that's it's all magic and it's like he's leaving the world of childhood he's 15 you know and he's going off into the real world to, to be a man and put aside childish things there's something i think it's a regular theme in neil gaiman's book as well the the idea that children can see magic and behold yes. sort of spectral things that yeah that adults can't and there's there's something about coming of age about the end as well mm, that hugely. he's he stops being able to see the magic and he has to embrace the reality of the world I, and you joked that it isn't like winnie the pooh and yet it is a lot <laughs> yes, like house of pooh true, corner yeah. the very end you know yeah. <laughs> of christopher robin having to grow up and leave mm. god yeah um and i you know it's been, I, it's been years since i've read the jungle book i haven't read it since i was a kid so I can't actually remember how it ends, but presumably it ends the same with... I um, so. I've forgotten his name. Mowgli. Mo- Mowgli. Mm. Um, uh, Mowgli leaving the jungle and going to live in the human world, mm. presumably. I-, I think so. Let's look it up. Let's find out. So at the end of the, the jungle book, uh, it's mentioned that Mowgli later becomes married and goes back to the man village. So oh, yeah. it's suitably kind of elusive, I think, and... It doesn't spell it out, but I think it's quite clear that he... He's leaving that world yeah, behind, yeah. yeah. The world oh that perhaps God. could easily be fueled by the imagination of the child that all mm. your friends are animals and your enemies, Shere Khan. God. I'm trying to remember, obviously, because for people our age, we remember the Jungle Book cartoon. 
Mm. I'm, trying, I'm trying to look when that was made. Um, it's there's the bare necessities, <laughs> well, the simple bare necessities of life. Um, I love bears. There's a I bit couldn't resist an <laughs> opportunity to sing that. <laughs> there's a bit of the uh, in the acknowledgements. He says, you know, if if you're only familiar with the cartoon, you watch what uh, read the book. But I've just, I didn't even know they'd made a, a, a modern film of it. it yeah, says, I remember it coming out. Is that any good? I've not seen it. Um, uh, when was the cartoon? It must be the late 80s or early 90s. Not 1967. Well, Disney went through a whole thing of oh my God, remastering and re-releasing their classic animations when we were kids. Yeah. Oh, yes, it was. Buddy, I, so, I, I thought it, yeah. As well as the new ones like Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King, mm. there were a whole surfeit of Disney films that came back to the cinemas when we wow. were young. So we saw, the, wow, the 67 Jungle mm. Book. And, but that's, uh, anyway, so which, and it, it lends itself so well to being a cartoon. So it brings us on to... You know, there's never been an adaptation of the mm. Graveyard Book that I know of. I'm surprised there hasn't been a stage play, but now I'm thinking maybe there yeah. has. But I, I'm not aware that there has been. Having seen the Ocean at the End of the Lane stage play last year, mm. I found myself wondering how they would do an adaptation of this. And I was trying to picture how the puppet makers might depict the Slayer. Um, oh, yeah, so I now yeah. have in my head a wonderful design for how a potential staging of the Slayer could go. So any potential playwrights that want to adapt it, you know where I am. <laughs> um, I think it would work really. You imagine the set with all the, the headstones. Mm. It would be really, really good. Um, and maybe even a, an animated version. I can't really imagine it working as a film. But Can you not? I mean, I, I, I don't think it would be as good. Mm. But then it never is, is it? That's the We always come back to that. Um, I think in in his older days, Tim Burton could have pulled it off. I'm oh, trying to think, back at, yeah, I'm trying to yeah. think if there's a modern filmmaker. Like, I don't know, maybe... Wes Anderson. Yeah, Wes Anderson or Guillermo del Toro. Ooh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So rather Get than Guillermo talking about adaptations, we're speculating <laughs> about fantasy adaptations. <laughs> what else can we do? I'd say what the closest, and it isn't very close, uh, is that there was a TV adaptation of Johnny and the Dead. Yes. It sounds like a punk band. <laughs> um, in fact, Simple Minds were first called Johnny and the Self-Abusers, so what, that's what, what I'm thinking. What I find really interesting, just in terms of creativity and authorship, is that I'd say Neil Gaiman came up with the idea for the Graveyard Book a long time ago and couldn't quite nail it and had started it and given up a few times. And he told Terry Pratchett about the idea. Have we had this conversation before? We might have done We might have had it on this very podcast. I, yeah, probably. And I think because he'd given up on it, Pratchett decided to use the idea yeah. yeah and he wrote a book called Johnny and the Dead which is about a kid who can see ghosts in a graveyard mm. I only read it earlier this year I think for the first time and it's fantastic mm. really really good very short children's book is it a Discworld no no it's nice. a there's a trilogy of books about Johnny Maxwell there's Johnny oh, and the Bomb and I think only you can save mankind um uh, and it's what's amazing is that he's taken the basic idea and yet it's nothing mm. even remotely like the graveyard book and it just goes to show how much you know people can say oh I've had an idea you want to buy my idea do you want to like so much of writing is in the writing mm. and what you bring to it and your own influences and your voice and how two people can have the same concept and and come up with a wildly different result i find that i find that really interesting it's like that thing we've said i think before that there are basically five stories yes, and everything yes, else is interpretation yeah. um so which of the five stories is day of the doctor 
<laughs> all of them. all of them all of them at once um because yes as as promised uh previously we will be back as usual um in november with uh the first hopefully the first of several doctor who episodes but it's finally time uh even though we're, yeah uh, we've surprised you oh, and hopefully it was a nice surprise <laughs> with a discussion of the graveyard book uh, and not Animal Farm <laughs> but we will be back as planned in November to celebrate the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who we'll see you then <laughs>